Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters this week. I am your host this week, Pastor Joshua Shear, Senior Pastor here out at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, coming to you from the High Plains, uh, where it is sunny and beautiful outside, not very windy. So, great thing as we are in the Lenten season to have a little sun. And, uh, yeah, so you are listening to KFUAM Radio, Radio, the messenger of the good news, Concord Matters. We are a show that simply just goes through the book of Concord. That is what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. Why we believe it and uh, what good that is for you, that's uh, what we discuss on this show, uh, paragraph by paragraph. And we kind of explain things, as we'll find out today, with some Latin words and then also some people that are named and so forth in our section that we're covering. So we use, uh, usually for this, uh, the Book of Concord, the Concordia Reader's Edition, available from Concordia Publishing House, which if you have not got one, it's a great time to buy one. They have them for 20 bucks. So buy one for yourself and for a neighbor, for a friend, for a fellow church member. Yeah, just buy a bunch of them and then start reading them. So that's be a good thing. All right, today we are joined with two guests again, uh, both of which over the phone. So uh, first we'll, we'll mention uh, Pastor Tim Fitzner, uh, who's Associate Pastor at Christ Lutheran Church in Normal, Illinois. Uh, Pastor Fitzner, are you with us? I am with you. Good to be here. All right. And then Pastor Matt Moss is Senior Pastor at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church and School in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Uh, Pastor Moss, are you there? I'm here. Good to be with you. I imagine it's a little colder and snowier up there. Yeah, but we're above freezing today. It's melting. It's melting. That's a good day in Minnesota. So, all right. So, we left off last week, Pastor Hendrickson left off uh, at Apology, that is the defense of the Augsburg Confession, Article 11, on confession itself. He left off after verse, or uh, paragraph 20, or 62, and so we're picking up in paragraph 63. Why don't I read that for us right now? Concerning the enumeration of sins in confession, people are taught in such a way as to not trap their consciences. It is helpful to familiarize inexperienced people to name some things in order that they may be more readily taught. We are now discussing what is necessary according to divine law. Therefore, the adversaries should not quote for us the regulation omnis utriesque, which we already know, but they should show from the divine law that complete naming of sins is necessary for obtaining their forgiveness. All right, Pastor Moss, I'm going to run right to you right away. Uh, please correct my mispronunciation of the Latin. Uh, I couldn't do that. Uh, it's not oh. right to me. All right. Well, all right. Let's discuss this a little bit. One, one of the things that you're going to find throughout this is you're listening to us discuss things today. Remember, for the Lutherans, we keep confession because of the absolution. All right? So everything in Lutheran theology is about the gospel. And specifically here with confession, we're going to be talking more about the desire that the absolution be heard by people. Now, this is a revolutionary change for the Roman Catholic Church. It's not a revolutionary change in the Church, because the Church of all time has focused on the absolution. But in medieval times, the Roman Catholic Church became much more obsessed with the act of confessing. 
And so what the uh, Augsburg Confession and the Apology are going to address here are the the overwhelming focus of the Roman Catholic Church on confession rather than actually doing all of this for the sake of the absolution. And that is a key difference, one of which really kind of is a a good sample difference between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics on this. So we get into this, and we're going to start talking about enumeration of sins. Pastor Fitzner, just briefly, if you would, just talk, tell the tell the listeners, enumeration of sin, what, what are they talking about here? Uh, enumeration of sins is, a good example of this would be uh, Luther before his uh, uh, monumentous occasion when he discovered the Gospel in Romans. Uh, he would go to his father confessor and confess for hours the most minute details of his sins uh, because it tormented him. And then he would get up and go, and he would turn right back around and confess it all over again, uh, because he was taught and told, you need to confess every little thing you have done or failed to do uh, that the Church, uh, or the Scriptures themselves even, uh, tell you what you are to do and not to do. Uh, And this could be any number of things, and it tormented Luther, and it can torment uh, any of our people that uh, think that you have to confess every single thing that you do, but... There's just no way to do it, and so it's what the confessions are getting at here. People are taught in such a way not to trap their consciences. That's exactly what total enumeration of sins is. It's trapping your conscience, and you could never know for sure that you've confessed them all or that you've confessed them rightly. Precisely, and and, and if you all of a sudden remembered one you forgot to confess, now you've sinned because you went in and you made a false confession, you didn't fully enumerate. So. Exactly, and that's what happened just with Luther, a, and, he would, and then he would just turn right around and go back to confession again, and spend hours yeah. in the confessional. And this is why later it'll talk about how this is just impossible, that, that this is impossible, but also they'll talk about how uh, the, the trap and snare for consciences is also the fact that they're focusing so much on um, canon law rather than divine law, which of course is a, a good thing they mention here even in this paragraph. Now, Pastor Moss it says to, it is helpful to familiarize inexperienced people to name some things in order that they may be more readily taught. So what what are our confessions talking about here as far as, you know, pastors maybe taking, you know, their their confirmands through this or maybe taking adult converts? Uh what what are we doing when we when we kind of start talking about this? How do we catechize this? Right. Well, first we have to start with the presupposition that it actually does have to be taught and catechized. By nature alone, man does not recognize how sinful he is or what sin is. There is some extent to which the natural law will teach us that some things are wrong, but left to natural revelation and natural law alone, we would never think we are as sinful as we actually are. So we must actually teach God's divinely revealed law and what sin actually is, the depth of our corruption, what we actually do wrong and don't do right. And so to uh, teach a child uh, what is sin is to teach them the Ten Commandments, is to teach them, as Luther does in the small catechism, to consider their station in life according to those Ten Commandments. And what have they done? Have they been hot-tempered, rude, lazy, quarrelsome, disobedient? Uh, that would be to guide them or to teach them to familiarize themselves with sin in a way that doesn't trap the conscience. Because uh, the conscience can be trapped in two ways. You, you both mentioned the, uh, the way in which you could never fully feel confident that you've actually confessed all your sins if you're required to confess all of them. But then you can also trap or ensnare a conscience in confession by leading them into sin, uh, by how the 
the confessor, the pastor who's leading or examining them, uh, starts bringing up maybe, especially in the case of children or, or younger, uh, younger adolescents, uh, some deep, dark sins and temptations that might not yet be on their radar, but by sure enough, the examiner bringing them up, they're on their radar now. Exactly. I think the scriptures speak about that, of uh, kind of guarding children and so forth for some of these things um, that they're not not a part of. But that's exactly it. We catechize our people, and I think you hit on it there. The small catechism kind of uses both your vocation in tandem with the Ten Commandments uh, as a useful tool for for examination. So, so in the in the estate of the church. You have preachers and you have hearers, and so then you can go through the Ten Commandments and see how you've how you've conducted yourself according to the Ten Commandments as a hearer in God's church. Then, of course, you can go into the home where you have uh, no shortage of, of vocation as father or husband and so forth, and you can look in uh, against the commandments and see how you've conducted yourself as those according to those commandments. You can also then go into uh, the state as a citizen of the of of the nation which you belong uh, how have you conducted yourself in regards to the commandments you know, certain commandments will always obviously pick out more than others fourth commandment for authorities and so forth uh husbands wives sixth commandment stuff but all of the commandments will have something to say in relation to their vocations in these fields and so i think that's what kind of the small catechism hints at when it says you know have you been hot tempered and so forth as a as a worker or whatever it would be. Well, and I think that is the, the litmus test uh, for what is sin. Uh, do we go about inventing sins that the Scripture does not speak of, that the Ten Commandments do not address? Are these things really sin? And if we pry too much, we burden that conscience again, and we make people think, oh, that maybe that was a sin, when in fact it was not. Right, exactly. I mean, Luther makes this all over the place, and then the Augsburg has just reiterated it over and over again. Those things which are sins are those things which are against God's Word. Um, specifically, the Ten Commandments would be the easiest way to determine that. And so uh, that's why they mention here, you know, we're, we're now discussing what is necessary according to divine law. This is going to be set over and against uh, canon law, church traditions, things like that, and we'll get to that in a second. So then they, they kind of preemptively, uh, Pastor Moss, they kind of preemptively do this... Uh, don't quote for us this regulation, which is uh, from the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, omnis utrisque, something like that. Um, and it's uh, from Canon 21, from what I understand. And and do you know more about this? Can you say you know what it meant for, for the common yes. person in Germany? Yeah, omnis utrisque is uh, one of the decrees of the Fourth Lateran Council, like you said, that stated that um, any man or woman who has reached an age of discretion must, must confess all, all his or her sins at least once per year to their parish priest. Uh, this is still canon law. A Roman Catholic, uh, somebody who calls themselves a Roman Catholic, is expected, uh, not even just expected, but required to make confession once per year to the priest and it should be all their sins. Correct. Yeah, and so so then the Lutherans counter by saying, show us from divine law where this is required for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, the, the silence would be there, uh, because of course the Roman Catholics don't have divine law on their side on this one. Uh, they, they have canon law, 
and uh, that's for as good as it goes, as far as the Word of God doesn't contradict it. Yeah, and this so. and this uh, Canon 21, where this comes from, from the Fourth Lateran Council, was not new in 1215. That They were uh, reiterating uh, other canon uh, laws that had been uh, passed already in previous councils. So, uh, if anything, they just strengthened it even more, and, and it continues to this day. Yeah, what what I had read in reading for this was basically yeah that it codified some some already pretty long-standing traditions um, uh, that had been set in all kinds of different places. So yeah. Well, and if, Sorry, you're, if you're expanding beyond divine law and you you do what Rome does, which is make human reason an equal authority to Scripture, then this is where human reason and its flawed logic will run. That uh, if forgiveness is contingent upon our confession rather than contingent upon God's grace. Uh, if forgiveness is contingent on our confession, then yeah, you have to confess every single sin or it's not covered. Yeah, exactly. All this is is just showing fruit of what happens in your theology when you lose the gospel. Yep, pure sophistry. Yeah, you, you end up back in all these rules, regulations, and so forth, uh, whether you become, you know, uh, yeah, it just it, it piles up new laws, new regulations that you have to follow and do as works. Yeah, every, everything gets flipped upside down. Everything gets reversed. It's not, it's focused on on you or the person or the man, and it's not focused on Christ the man. Indeed. All right, let's move on to paragraphs 64 and 65. They kind of go together, so we'll read them together here. The entire Church throughout all Europe knows what sorts of snares this point of regulation has cast upon consciences by commanding that all sins be confessed. The matter was only made worse by the summists who collected their circumstances and sins and added their own ideas. What mazes there were! How great a torture for be for the best minds! The immoral and ungodly were in no way moved by these instruments of terror. Afterward, what tragedies did the questions about one's own priest stir up among the pastors and brethren, who, by who then were by no means brethren, when they were warring about jurisdiction of confessions? We believe that according to divine law, a complete listing of sins is not necessary. This is also pleasing to... Pan, Panormatanus, and very many other learned legal scholars. Nor do we want to burden the consciences of our people by the regulation omnis utriusque. We judge it to be like any other human tradition. They are not acts of worship necessary for justification. This regulation commands that we do something impossible, that we should confess all sins. However, it is clear that most sins we neither remember nor understand, according to Psalm 19.12, who can discern his errors. All right. So, we get into this. I just want the listeners to pay attention, and particularly if you have the text in front of you, go through and look at the words that are used, uh, the things about uh, traps and consciences and tragedies and so forth. Okay? Because we're going to be discussing this as we go through this, that there are snares and mazes and tortures and tragedies uh, this is all referring to the Christian. Now, we have a few minutes, so I'm going to take a little bit of time here and talk about the pastoral nature of the Lutheran confessions. Um, Pastor Moss, would you start us out? This is not just the Lutheran saying, well, we're going to debate scholastic theology here. Why are they discussing this stuff? And we see this throughout the confessions. What's their main concern? Their main concern is the consciences of believers, and in this section you even see even unbelievers, uh, even the immoral and ungodly, are not 
converted. So even if you were a pragmatist saying that this level of scrutiny and uh, torture and maze would actually produce conversion in somebody, if a pragmatist were to argue that, even that argument would fall, uh, that there is no conversion, no faith in this model of scholasticized confession, where everything is dissected on an academic level, uh, rather than doing casuistry or pastoral care where it belongs between a pastor and a hurting soul, a hurting conscience. Yeah. Pastor Fitzner, uh, how about you? I mean, in, in your interactions with your with your members of your churches um, that you've been a pastor of, you know, what happens when you lay out the Lutheran Confessions and they actually start seeing it? Uh, they, they see that, for the sake of conscience, they see the peace that Christ comes to bring in the absolution, that that is where the focus should be and needs to be for the sake of conscience. Uh, it's no mistake that uh, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples in John 20. The first thing he says to them, they're, they're, they've locked themselves in the upper room. They're terrified that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. And the first thing he says to them is, peace to you. And so that's the whole point of of the cross and the resurrection of the word and the sacraments and specifically in this case of the absolution is to give that peace that Christ has won on the cross that we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly. I'm uh, I'm, I'm in the process of leading a group of folks through a, a Lenten uh, 40-day read-through of the Book of Concord which means it's you know pretty hefty reading each day but a lot of folks who haven't read it before are reading it and they're remarking as to how amazing uh, and how careful it is to make sure that the gospel remains throughout all of it, in particular how meaningful and comforting it is for them to read. So if you haven't had a chance to catch up or to, to, to uh, read up on the Book of Concord, just crack it open sometime. Um, start reading it. There's some really good stuff in there. Um, this is just part of it. Uh, so we see here this care, this exhibit of pastoral care, talking about all Europe, the entire church, um, has has these snares, uh, point of regulation is cast upon consciences, uh, commanding that all sins would be confessed. And then, of course, it talks about these summists. Uh, Pastor Moss, wh what are these summists? What is it talking about there? Well, a summist is a person who writes a summa. So what's a summa? Uh, a summa would be a type of theological uh, textbook, for uh, a simplified way of putting it, of theology, a sum total of all theology. And so these, uh, the plural of a summa is a summae, and there were many of them throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, many different theologians wrote them. Uh, to, some of the famous ones would be Peter Lombard with his sentences, uh, Thomas Aquinas with his summa. Uh, these were exhaustive works of uh, medieval theology, heavily leaning upon human reason, and um, not what you would probably call the most practical in the sense of pastoral care of consciences. It's going to deal with these things, not just on a theological level, because theology is practical, but on a theoretical level, uh, working through, like it says, the great mazes, the breaking it down into so many minute pieces that it's no longer just uh, the Sixth Commandment is against adultery, but now we're going to break it down into a billion different mi micro-levels, and if that starts informing your confession, your practice of confessing your sin, you can see how a priest 
or somebody in the confessional booth with their pastor is going to become uh, truly tortured and lost in a maze. Here I thought I was just struggling with adultery, and now I find out there's, you know, 16 different sub-levels of adultery that I'm guilty of all of them. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of, you know, as we're in tax season, it kind of reminds me of, like, you know, the, the task of a CPA <laughs> to keep up on tax code as it changes from year to year and deepens and, and gets more, you know, codified, that it's not just a matter of, you know, could take a flat percent and call it good. It's, you know, how many things and how many things are deducted and how, I mean, just all the ins and outs, loops and so forth, uh, loopholes and, and so forth. It just reminds me of that kind of uh, kind of mess, which, of course, that's where legalism leads. I mean, if you're saved by works, then you're saved by the law, which means you need legalism because you need to understand exactly how it is you need to be saved, how to, how to do this and do that and not do this and not do that to get there. And, uh, yeah, I can't imagine the torture as I've read through some of those works as far as uh, even reading through some of the primers that they had for making confession are just uh, amazing to read all the different eccentricities that they have and so forth. But then you get into this, uh, yeah, that they, they, they collected the circumstances of the sins, then they add their own ideas, like you said, they add all kinds of different layers rather than just the commandments and so forth. Um, how great a torture for the best minds... Okay, so even the smartest folks would be tortured by this. But then, like you said before, the immoral and godly were no my move, in no way moved by these instruments of terror. So even like the unbelieving uh, wouldn't—they <laughs> weren't moved to do this because, of course, it's it just too burdensome. Why? Who bothers? I can't even do this. So why bother? Right? Now, now we get into paragraph sixty-five. Just real quick here uh, before we get to a break. Um, Pastor Fitzner, it, it kind of talks about this tragedies developing uh, one's own priest stirring up among the pastors and brethren uh, who were by no means brethren uh, when they were warring about jurisdiction of confessions. Is this is this kind of related to the idea that certain sins could be classified as so heinous that they could only be confessed to certain like levels of, of clergy, right? Yeah, this is uh, referring to the uh, kind of the hierarchy of, okay, this is a such a grievous sin that you need to go to someone higher up in the hierarchy, whereas this other sin, uh, your local parish priest can take care of that. That's no problem. And we still see that uh, in the modern Roman Catholic Church with certain sins, uh, some that they say cannot be absolved, uh, and other ones that you have to go through uh, the Vatican or through the archdiocese or whatever the case may be. Uh, so yeah, you still see that. And, I, and I'm not sure, but I wouldn't surprise me one bit if part of this was also playing in with the sale of indulgences uh, for the sale of the forgiveness of sins, that they could only sell them in certain jurisdictions because they wanted to keep that coin in that area. So it wouldn't True. surprise me if that was part of it, too. Good point. That's, uh, that is a very common practice, that each region would have their own indulgence. They'd all have their own relics. Uh, uh, there was a little bit of uh, regional contentions against uh, one another to make sure you could raise enough money. Yeah, and so I mean, forth, the, but the here you have not not just maybe not just money, but also just power. That you know, I, I'm I'm higher on the I'm a I'm a senior pastor. You know, I I, I deserve to see this this or hear this person's confession more because it's even more heinous. And yeah, even here, the, they rooted in uh, what this does to the conscience of the people. What tra it's not what tragedies did the priests and pastors endure? It's what tragedies did these did the questions about one's own priest stir up? Uh, 
I mean, think about that. If your if your confession and you know they don't have absolution, but if their sacrament of penance is rooted in uh, being in the proper jurisdiction with your priest, having the proper uh, credentials, hey, you got a big problem. I'm glad we don't have uh, that, but simply uh, I can trust my pastor's absolution because he says it uh, in the stead and by the command of Christ, not according to some canonical law jurisdiction that nobody can really understand. Yeah, well, that's that's a great point, because that's, of course, the Roman Catholic system is based upon power and jurisdictions, uh, all relating back to the kingdoms of this world, really. Uh, the Pope and everything stemming from him, rather than Christ and his word, uh, which is the great problem you see here, is this, this kind of departure from God's word. In a second, we'll hear that there's just, Christ is nowhere read in all of these things, which is, of course, the greatest... Worst problem that there is for all of this, and yeah, all this uh, this disputing and so forth, and and having to depend upon who the who the actual one hearing your confession is, um, has to be kind of just a torment to people, uh, especially should that man ever be shown to be uh, unfit for office or something like that. All of a sudden, oh, well, was my was my penance worth it, or or those sins come back to me now? All the various things that could happen from that. So we are coming up against a hard break. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk about further about this paragraph 65 and following on the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on, on Confession, in which we'll get to uh, all kinds of this talk about burdens and traditions and so forth and torture. And But then we're going to get, of course, to why we have words of faith as Lutherans, uh, words of Christ about comfort and encouraging consciences of everyone. You've been listening to Concord Matters uh, here on KFUO AM Radio. Messenger Good News. Uh, we'll be back right after the break. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m. for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service in congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org slash kit to download the Refugee Sunday kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. lirs.org slash kit. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. 
Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. When Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi, which means Savior of the World, sold in November 2017 for 450 million, it was a record for any work of art sold at auction. Sold! Da Vinci, an Italian Renaissance painter, was one of the most celebrated artists of all time, painting many scenes from the Bible. One of his most famous paintings, The Last Supper, is a 29-foot by 15-foot fresco of Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his crucifixion, the moment Jesus says to his disciples that one of them will betray him. The moment is described in the Gospel of John. Da Vinci painted the disciples with emotions ranging from grief and sadness to rage and love. Engage with the Bible in its influence on the arts over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Concord Matters here on KFUO AM Radio. Messenger of the Good News, I'm this week's host, Pastor Joshua Shear, here with my guests, Pastor Matt Moss and Pastor Timothy Fitzner. We are here discussing the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 11 on Confession. We're in particular discussing paragraph 65 right now as we left off. We left off talking a little bit about the abuses in the Roman Catholic system, of course, enumeration of sins being one of them, but now this idea of jurisdictions that that pastors, uh, you know, certain priests were for these kind of sins and bishops had to be for these and cardinals. And then, of course, if you had something really, really, really bad, it could only be forgiven by the Pope in Rome. And so we, we, we addressed that, and, and we talked about that. But, of course, let's, let's bring that home a little bit more. Um, you know, in this show right now, uh, Pastor Fitzner is an associate pastor. Uh, pastor Moss is, an, is a senior pastor. And, and to some might hear those words differently. But, of course, uh, both of them hold Christ's word. And both of them, when they absolve, are not absolving as associate pastor or senior pastor. They're absolving as a, as a called and ordained servant of Christ. And so the, all the authority is vested in Christ and his word. And that difference between senior and associate is actually one of a human distinction, uh, which we as Lutherans would acknowledge. That that's just a human distinction set up for good order in parishes where you have multiple pastors. Because, of course, that helps pastors do their job better if you have kind of an order uh, of tasks who are doing of who are doing what and so forth. But when it comes to these things of the gospel, these things of God's word, uh, all pastors are, are equal that they, they all have that word of Christ and they all are given to share it, to preach it, to teach it, uh, to absolve with it, baptize, commune, and so forth. Uh, so just to kind of emphasize that, and that goes, you know, even within the church structure uh, of, the, of, the, of the synod, you know. Uh, pastors hold the highest office in the synod, uh, that this is, this is the office that Christ has commanded. And from that, uh, we take men who are ordained and we put them into other kind of man-made offices at times to do certain tasks. Uh, but, of course, the worldly power structure gets in the way and we kind of start thinking higher of certain things and high, less of other things. And uh, we, we shouldn't, uh, but we do. But I think, uh, and we were talking about it during the break a little bit, the big thing we want to kind of stress here as far as bringing this all back home is actually the idea that how many of our parishes make a practice of 
confession and absolution. Uh, yes, you know, I, we understand Sunday mornings, the general confession, absolution, corporate confession, absolution, that happens usually at the mini- beginning of a divine service. But how many of uh, of these things, uh, private confession, absolution, which is primarily what the Lutheran confessions talk about? Um, general confession did exist at the time. Uh, Johannes Bugenhagen had, had instituted some of that and practiced it and so forth. But in general, it's talking more about the private confession, absolution. So... How do we, how do we as, as pastors and as people of the church then uh, commend private confession and absolution? Pastor Moss, what would your suggestion be to start with on this? I mean, we talked about catechesis earlier. Yeah. Um, well, first I would, I would uh, encourage any of the pastors listening to, to make sure that they too are, are practicing this with a father confessor. Uh, work with your circuit visitor to find one if you're uh, not currently served in that way. Uh, we as pastors cannot afford not to do this. I know we get busy, especially now in the seasonal Lent with double the services. Uh, but uh, even though no one will see that, it's not modeled publicly for your own spiritual health. You know you need that. Uh, then for the catechesis of our people, it's important to talk about it, preach about it, invite people to it. Uh, our church does offer it. Public or Private confession is advertised at specific dates and times. Um, Increasing frequency during uh, Lent has been a, a practice in the past, in Holy Week. And then uh, the, the real time when it gets catechized or brought home is in, I'll, pull, I'll call it, regular situations, in, in conversation with the pastor, in, uh, in seeking his counsel or aid, or in a nursing home or in a hospital room. When those things come up, the pastor, who is hopefully... He's a, if he's a good man, as paragraph 66 will say, if he's listening and he's a good man, he will recognize that what the person might be complaining about is actually them confessing. So uh, don't be an ear that hears complaint, be an ear that hears confession and pronounces absolution. Uh, teach it as it happens, and it will happen. Uh, if you're listening to your people, it's happening. They are that is, confessing. That- that is a good point to, to that it's so it's fallen into so much disuse formally that that folks maybe informally are even starting to do it but don't even realize it in themselves uh pastor fitzner how about you what what kind of suggestions would you have for for in the parish getting this practice back into practice so i would agree with pastor moss about uh, the teaching the catechizing uh paragraph 63 touches on that in order that they may be more readily taught uh this shows up in the three-year lectionary and the one-year lectionary in the Easter season, uh, so no matter which one your congregation uses, the John 20 reading uh, is always used in the Easter season, and that's where the Office of the Keys is. So that's a great opportunity to reach uh, the entire congregation on the teaching of what the Keys is, and that this is for the sake of the troubled conscience, uh, that your pastor stands ready whenever you are uh, to come and confess your sins and to be absolved and to have that uh, Christ-crucified gospel applied directly to you. And so, yeah, to teach about it uh, in Bible study, in sermons, in conversations. And I would uh, echo as well that uh, when people come in to my office or my study and uh, need to talk about something, they're shocked when all of a sudden they I stand up and, and pronounce the absolution on them, and they realize what's going on, that the tears almost immediately start flowing, because all of a sudden this huge burden is lifted off of them because Christ has taken care of it. 
and they didn't even realize it until that happens. And so we need to constantly, continually teach and catechize on this, uh, that this is a great gift and a wonderful thing for us to have from Christ himself. Yeah, I, I often hear from folks who, who some of their main contentions against it are, they're not used to it, but more so they're, they're nervous about the pastor just, you know, knowing their sinfulness, which of course is no shock to any pastor um, at all. It shouldn't ever be a shock to a pastor. Um, but in the same respect, uh, my response is often, you know, well, I'll, I'll know that you're a Christian who understands the good gift that absolution is. Mm -hmm. And that's what Luther says in the, uh, the large catechism about his exhortation to confession. When I urge you to go to confession, I'm urging you to do nothing more than to be a Christian. Yeah, which is which is a fundamental def definition of Christianity that most Americans don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, Christianity in America is oftentimes about, you know, joyful living, victorious living, all these various glorious things that can happen, and you know, of course, then should be happening. Of course, then when they don't, you're you're stuck. You're maybe not a Christian, right? Well, or, or but that's that's the lie. Um, the real thing is that Christians are sinners who know it. Because yeah. God's word tells them they're sinners, but then besides that, they then know what God's word says about their sins, and they seek out that forgiveness which God gives. Or even people say, "Well, I can confess my sins directly to God." Well, yeah, you do, but for the sake of your conscience, you need that external word proclaimed to you, uh, and that's what the pastoral office is specifically given for, for the sake of that troubled conscience, for those things that keep you up at night or that constantly nag nag you and bug you in your mind. That's why you can go to them. Yeah, and, and let's let's just face it. A lot of folks who say that actually probably rarely actually confess them to God. So um, this is this is just the the fact of the matter. It's a defense defense mechanism against really being who you are. That is a sinner who is forgiven by Christ, and uh, that's what confession brings about. And it's a good thing. Uh, it's a great gift. If you haven't been part of it, ask your pastor about it. Uh, he should be very willing to offer it to you. So, all right, let's move on here. Paragraph 65, uh, we talked right before the break about these jurisdictions and so forth. And we believe, according to divine law, a complete list is not necessary. So, again, the Lutherans are going back to the word divine law, not canon law, not church traditions, none of that stuff. We're going to go back to what God's word actually says. And that's what we're going to go with. Now, then they mention this man, uh, Panor, uh, Panormatanus. Um, who is, uh, from my initial glance through, is a guy named Niccolo de Tudeschi, who's, who's an Italian, uh, but a Benedictine monk who became a canonist. Pastor Moss, do you, do, you, do you know anything more about this guy? Well, he's from the 15th century, so not too long, maybe a, maybe a hundred years before the, the confessions. And yeah, he, he, he's not, you wouldn't call him a church father, which is usually what you expect the confessions to quote, is to show the, the Roman Catholics that Augustine agrees with us, St. John Chrysostom agrees with us, these theological giants from uh, the early Church era. But no, even the more recent canon lawyers uh, can stand as precedent for, for what the Lutherans are saying. And, and this, this man uh, is one of the bigger ones in, in canon law. And so um, he, he agrees with their position that in the canon law, all doesn't necessarily mean all. Uh, in divine law, it does. All nations should be baptized means all nations. But in canon law, uh, all sins must be confessed apparently doesn't mean all. So uh, they're, they're citing it for the benefit of, of the emperor, 
uh, who's reading this defense of our faith, but also to start to show the uh, internal breakdowns in the Roman Catholic system. And I'll get into more of that later on. Well, which, which might actually be related to actually mentioning this guy's name, because when I did research about this, this guy started out supporting the Pope, and then during the anti-Pope crisis, he, he sided with the anti-Pope. Mm-hmm. So he himself is kind of a walking display of how much disorder there is, even though they claim that there is so much order um, that, that that's the case. He had the nickname of being the Lamp of the Law. So uh, how about that, Pastor Fitzner? Would you like that for a nickname, Lamp of the Law? Uh, I could think of about a dozen other nicknames that I would rather have. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But this is the guy they cite because they want to kind of show it that, yep, even your most recent canon lawyers don't agree to this. So uh, your requirements are silly, even according to canon law. And so that that's what we can move on to then. That uh, Nor do we want to burden the consciences of our own people by this regulation, omnis utrisque, from the Fourth Lateran Council. Um, then they say so that we judge it to be like any other human tradition. They are not acts of worship necessary for justification. That's almost a word-for-word um, copy of what they said in regards to the universal rights of Augsburg 7 and then the Apology of Augsburg 7, showing the value of traditions being things like discipline and uh, peace amongst different regions and different pastors, different congregations, so forth, uh, discipline and training for the young, the simple, all the good things that can happen there. Um, but, of course, that as soon as you make that necessary for salvation, necessary for justification, you have sinned. You, you've, you've violated God's word. And that's what they're saying here, is that they're judging it like any other human tradition. You know, is it good to examine your life and, you know, try to, uh, to try to confess sins? Yes, that's good. Is it a requirement to do all of that and make sure you don't miss any in order to be saved? No, now you've crossed a line. It's a really bad thing. So, um, so then we get on to this. Uh, regulation commands that we do something impossible. And then, Pastor Moss, if you would just comment on this. Most sins we neither remember nor understand. You hinted at this earlier when you talked about how we don't really even know, and this is what original sin has done, uh, that the natural law can show us some things. Uh, but let's talk about this. What, why are we neither remembering nor understanding? What's, what's this from? Is this original sin? Yes, we have, a, we have a corrupt nature that does not know God rightly and... By not knowing God rightly, we also do not know ourselves rightly or the world around us. Uh, so deep is our corruption. And so we are not able to um, look at ourselves rightly. We, we can't diagnose our own problem, uh, certainly not to the extent at which it plagues us and our children. Um, and so... Uh, while, while God's law, the divine law, also commands something that's impossible, this is a big point for Luther in his debate with Erasmus, um, because that's on the other side, in the Roman Catholic error of you actually can do good works towards your salvation, they say, well, if God commanded it, it must be doable. No, <laughs> it's not doable. Uh, just because God commands it doesn't mean it's possible for you to perfectly keep it. Where this becomes a problem is their commands, which are impossible, are only human traditions. The command that they confess every sin at least once a year is a human tradition and not at all possible. God has the divine right to, to command a law 
that we cannot keep by virtue of our original sin, our corrupt nature. Uh, but that's God's divine law. That's not human tradition. That's not a. a that's not something humans are able to do. Uh, and and that's where we're going to get in the next paragraph to where this all uh, is finally solved um, in, in Christ and uh, through faith which receives or obtains this forgiveness because by our own nature we can't recognize our sin and by the way, by our own nature and natural revelation we could never learn about the gospel. Indeed. So let's move on to paragraph 66 and 67. Let's, uh, let's finish out this section. If the pastors are good men, they will know to what extent they should examine inexperienced persons. But we do not want to sanction the torture of the summists. It would have been more tolerable if they had added one word about faith which comforts and encourages consciences. About this faith which obtains the forgiveness of sins, there is not a syllable in so great a mass of regulations, commentaries, summaries, or books of confession. Christ is nowhere read there. Only the lists of sins are read. The greater part is occupied with sins against human traditions. This is most useless. This doctrine has forced many to despair. Godly minds were not able to find rest because they believed that by divine law, listing was necessary. Yet they experienced that it was impossible. Other faults of no less importance cling to the doctrine of the adversaries about repentance, which we will now recount as they introduce the next section in the Book of Concord. All right, Pastor Fitzner, if pastors are good men, what's this all about? Well, if pastors are good men, they will be keeping their eyes on the Good Shepherd himself uh, and and not looking, for, uh, looking in places where they shouldn't be looking, uh, continually looking at the Word, looking at the Ten Commandments, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments, Luther instructs us in the Catechism. And in our hymnal it even says, uh, in the con individual confession and absolution, the pastor may gently question or instruct you not to pry or judge, but to assist in self-examination. Um, then also what he says in the small catechism, in his short form of con confession, uh, it says, let the penitent confess whatever else he has done against God's commandments and his own position. If, however, someone does not find himself burdened with these or greater sins, he should not trouble himself or search for or invent other sins, and thereby make confession a torture. Instead, he should mention one or two things he knows. But if you know of none at all, which hardly seems possible, then mention none in particular, but receive the forgiveness upon the general confession. And so the pastor can ask just brief questions, okay, uh, with regard to the Sixth Commandment or the Seventh Commandment or the Fourth or the Third or or whichever one, uh, one or two, he can just mention and just ask gentle, gentle questions uh, that might bring something to mind. Go, oh yeah, I, 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 I missed church because I was lazy one Sunday, or, or I, I got angry at uh, whatever uh, governing authority it might be, or got mad at my parents or my teacher, uh, whatever it might be. So, but not, not to torture them the way the summers do, uh, but to help them go and to recognize and confess their own sinfulness but not to torture them, because the whole point is not about that. It's about the Good Shepherd, who these pastors, if they're good men, will have their eyes on, and he cares about that little lamb, that precious sheep for whom Christ died. And we speak that word of forgiveness to them. We speak that word of forgiveness to them 
unlike what we hear uh, in all these commentary summaries or books of confession, Christ is nowhere read. That's what confession is. They're saying, give me Jesus. I need Jesus now. Yeah. Pastor Moss, you mentioned this section a little bit earlier about pastors being good men. What would you like to add to it? Well, I, I guess just an, an, an amen to Pastor Fitzner <laughs> and to maybe give a, a, a comparison. You know, when you go to a doctor, you want a doctor who's going to uh, work to heal your body. And if he has to ask a few more questions to help guide, you trust that he's doing it for your good and for your healing. Um, what, what an awful, terrible human being it would be serving as a doctor who actually got pleasure out of causing pain and, you know, tearing you apart and just having no care, no love for your healing and your body. Um, what a horrible doctor that would be. And, and so, too, with these summists, just delving and digging and stabbing and, and prodding and pouring salt in open wounds uh, to these poor consciences. No, uh, if the pastor is a good man who is caring for these sheep, he's, he's going to, to ask questions from a, from a position of, of love and care for the, for the sinner's conscience, both now in this confession and for, for their continued life in Christ. Um, and maybe to the other extreme, I'd say it's uh, the pastors are not good men if they turn a deaf ear to the confession while it's happening. You know, we've got too many pastors that think being a pastor means being a buddy uh, and just, you know, giving uh, mind-numbing words of encouragement, not treating sin like the serious sin it is, a sin that must be forgiven, but just kind of a, hey, okay, you're doing all right, uh, hang in there, keep it up. No, that your people need a pastor. They need somebody who's going to bring them the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. That's what you've been commissioned and sent to do. Do it. They've got plenty of friends. They've got yeah. plenty of family. Yeah, your, 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 You're pastor the pastor. your pastor doesn't turn around during the divine service and tell you it's no, it's no big deal. He says, I forgive you all your sins, as Christ has commanded and sent me to do exactly that. And those aren't easy words to say, uh, when we, especially when we keep Christ the crucified before our eyes and show people uh, the cross, that this is God's love for you, this is the sacrifice he gave to forgive your sins. And once they're gone, once they're forgiven, they're gone. So exactly. if the pastor is a good man, he's not going to be coming, having someone come into his uh, study or into the church for confession, and he's not going to dredge up former sins. Okay, you confessed this to me last year, are you still having troubles with that? Right. But you just brought it back to their mind, and exactly. that, sin that sin is forgiven. Now, Pastor Moss, you mentioned a little bit about this, about how some might try to encourage with, like, you know, hang in there, or they'll be pointing them back. Well, you know, just, you know, pray harder, or do this little trick a little more, or strive a little harder. No, no, no. Here's the beautiful thing, is, it, is the confessions here even teach us how to do this. Mm -hmm. um, it'd be more tolerable. So instead of needles and so forth, like the summist, they add one word about faith, just, just one word. Now, of course, the Lutheran pastor has more than just one word about this but one word about faith which comforts and encourages consciences. So if a pastor truly wants to comfort, if he truly wants to encourage, he will be speaking the gospel. He will be forgiving sins and speaking about that faith which then receives the forgiveness of sins for that person's justification and always drawing it back to that gospel. 
because that's how you really encourage people. They may leave, you know, after you've given them like a win-win for the Gipper speech, they may leave your office feeling great, but they don't go away actually spiritually encouraged. They go away earthly encouraged, which will last as far as the next stumble. But spiritual encouragement goes deeper than that and lasts eternally. And, if we go and back. that's why the pastor's job is that of, of, of speaking the gospel to these people. So you see this, um, and then you have this, that all of these works, all the works of the summits, all these commentaries, everything else, have been piled up, and none of them speak of this. None of them speak of the gospel. This is, of course, the reason why the Roman Catholic Church had drifted so far, because the gospel was forgotten. It was gone. And you know what? Reformation happens. What do they do with it? They curse it. You know, the... 20 years after this, they're condemning it in the Council of Trent uh, because they just, this is, this is nothing to them. They, they, uh, they've forsaken the truth in this respect. And so then it talks about how Christ is nowhere in there. What a, what a horrible thing. Can you imagine a spirituality where you don't have Christ? Nope, they're only, listening, they're only hearing the lists of sins read, and most of those are about human traditions. You know, can you imagine going to confession here? Well, did you eat meat on Fridays? Right. So this, this is like going to an IRS agent's office, right? I mean, essentially is what it ends up being is just kind of a tortuous affair of, of breaking man-made laws. Um, just a mess. Um, so, so, so then we have this, you know, the final verse. It's forced many to despair. Lutherans are concerned about not despairing. And so we want to make sure that, that our people are encouraged and have comfort. And this is why we do this. Um, so, so this is why they stress this. Now they're going to move into the next section on repentance and so forth. Uh, in about 30 seconds, Pastor Moss, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, uh, this doctrine has forced many to despair, and to be blunt, despair puts Christ back in the grave. We have no reason to despair, and that's what this, this awful doctrine and practice that had developed did. It left Christ in the grave uh, even though we're in the season of Lent where there's a heavy cross focus, we still gather on Sunday as a celebration of the resurrection. He is risen. We have full confidence to come before his throne of grace, uh, to confess our sins knowing that we have a merciful high priest who has passed through the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father, who knows how we've been tempted, has been tempted in every way like we are, uh, yet is without sin. And so we have, uh, we have more than a syllable on faith. We have more than a word about faith. We have the full forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, and it is there for these people, your people, uh, the listeners, your parishioners, my parishioners, and, and you know, woe to the pastor who withholds it from them. Amen. Pastor Fitzner, uh, I, I would just encourage our listeners to go on back and listen to his previous uh, discussion about how good this is, what pastors should be doing, and how they should be delivering Jesus to the people, because people are crying out for it when they confess sins. Um, I want to thank both of uh, you pastors for, for being with me today, Pastor Moss, Pastor Fitzner. Uh, you've been listening to Concord Matters here on KFU AM Radio, the messenger of the good news. Go to church, ask your pastor about confession. Hear the absolution, and uh, be encouraged by that true word that does encourage for all time, the gospel. The Lord bless you and you're listening and going to church this weekend.